Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and this is our show where we cover the news and tease apart what's hype, what's real from our vantage point in tech. So this week, we're actually covering one topic, but several headlines around Zoom and security concerns. The news ranged from misleading definitions around end-to-end encryption and their links to China, and the tech trends we touch on include the classic so-called trade-off between usability and security, the blending of consumer and enterprise, in SaaS, cloud security, and more. So joining this episode are A6NZ experts David Yulovich, first time on the show, general partner in Enterprise and formerly CEO of OpenDNS, which was acquired by Cisco, and Joel De La Garza, a regular on the show, operating partner for security, who was formerly chief security officer at Box, among other things. So let's just quickly start, you guys, with what's happening, which is that Zoom use, along with other tech applications, has exploded in a very short time, and this is as reported on their site, due to the novel coronavirus pandemic, which we've covered earlier on the show. Specifically, it's due to people having to shelter in place and companies having to go all remote. So let's start there. There's very few companies ever, maybe there's been no companies ever, that have scaled at the rate that Zoom has scaled over the last 30 to 45 days. I mean, they sort of have redefined hypergrowth, going from 10 million daily users to 200 million daily users. And one of the things that they're learning is that decisions they made that worked for 10 million largely enterprise users may not be the same decisions that they need to make now at 200 million daily active everybody users. So school kids, like cycling studios that are doing exercise classes remotely, as well as just a lot more enterprise users. And so I think that they're now coping with all that attention and all those considerations. Well, one thing that I think is worth emphasizing there is that it's not just that it's a sheer scale or even the speed that that happened at. It's actually about also the shift in user base, that it's gone from enterprise-grade type users to more mainstream consumers. And as you mentioned, a lot of students are now taking classes online. So what does the shift between consumer and enterprise mean here? So generally, security is the thing that kind of differentiates consumer and enterprise. And a big part of that is that large enterprise-type companies, think regulated companies, banks, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, security is really important to the way that they run and operate their business. And what tends to happen is products for the enterprise tend to overdo security, and essentially they make usability and user experience suffer. And so Enterprise tools tend to have a lot of friction when it comes to kind of logging in, how you manage your account, how you can share and collaborate on things. And so as a result of that, enterprise tools tend to be less joyous to use than consumer tools. And that's why the web portal you look at in your job or the intranet that you visit for your job doesn't have anywhere near as slick as an appeal as like an Instagram or a Facebook, right? Zoom found its way into the enterprise because employees were not happy with the tools that the central IT organization was providing. And that's kind of why Zoom overnight became, you know, a household word. One of the things that I think has made Zoom so successful in in a sea of, frankly, a large number of competitors is that they have really reduced the friction to getting started compared to their competitors, most of whom you have to talk to a salesperson to even get an account. Zoom went for years without having any of those things. You could go to their website, sign up, and immediately get on a Zoom call between two people. And that's enabled them to have this rapid growth. You know, it sort of is inherently viral because once you start using a Zoom and you realize that it's better, you'll just start using it for all your meetings going forward and inviting other people to Zoom meetings. And so as a result of that, they've gotten away with having this massive amount of momentum and growth 
without having to do all those security considerations Joel talked about. But actually, as it turns out, they have them. So passwords for meetings, guest registration for meetings. They just haven't had them turned on by default, like most of their more traditional enterprise competitors. And now that they're at scale, they're asking people to turn them on and they're actually changing their defaults. But now they have 200 million daily active users. Right. So specifically, your point is that in a way, Zoom has captured a bigger user base by starting that way up front versus if they had done the default the other way around. I mean, you've heard me talk about how companies often earn the right to get more complicated. Earning the right to be complicated for an enterprise application means making it really easy to get started. And so thinking about like the first hour, first day, first week experience of a product. And then once people really get that first part of the experience and get sort of joy and happiness out of it, then you can say, hey, look, maybe you want to integrate with a single sign-on service or Active Directory. And that, that takes some more work and some more effort. But usually by that point, the product is now so well-liked inside an organization or by a user that they've earned that right to be able to do that further integration that is more complicated. The flip side of that is that by obscuring the complication, users don't know about the full set of capabilities. And I think most users of Zoom didn't know that they could set passwords on meetings, that they could create waiting rooms and have the host accept people, that they didn't know that there was a webinar mode where they could have panelists so that other people could never speak in the meeting. And so everyone's you know quickly getting educated. And I think Zoom is now running, I think, multiple webinars a day. I hate to use that word, but multiple webinars a day <laughs> to train people on all the functionality that's been in there for quite some time. But I actually don't think that Zoom is like the easiest to use product. The audio quality, the video quality is excellent, which is why people choose it, because it's easy to get started with and the quality is excellent. But from a sort of UX and UI standpoint, I don't think it's anything particularly better or worse than what's out there. I know this is like the most uncool thing to say, but you know, I worked at Cisco for three years where we own WebEx and we were heavy WebEx users. And I found WebEx to be a very good product. That said, there was friction to getting started with WebEx. It was hard to go to the website to sign up, to get a commercial plan. You know, the self-serve aspects weren't really there. Most of those security features that we talked about earlier were on by default. Earning the right to be complicated and ease of use is not about necessarily being intuitive and, and pretty and those things. That's an element of it, but it's not the only thing. Interesting. So we're also talking about this broader trend of bottom-up SaaS, and Zoom is obviously just a very top-of-mind case of it right now and in the news on the security side. So I have to ask, what does this all mean on the product pricing and packaging side? On one hand, Joel says security up front is one of the biggest ways to make a product enterprise grade. But I also remember in our first podcast together that you described the strategy of tiering features into packages and pricing them as you add more features but that you also frowned on withholding security as part of that tiering. Can you share your views on how that plays out here? Yeah, I think using security as a packaging differentiator is usually a net loss for the overall product experience and for the user experience. Now, there are lots of things that can be added to create enterprise sort of grade functionality. So integrating with a directory service or single sign-on service, that may not be appropriate for a lower package offering, but may be very appropriate for an enterprise grade package offering. But for example, the kinds of encryption you use, the kinds of security that you provide, the kinds of controls like a waiting room and those things, those generally, I would say, are better off being pushed down to the lower tiers so that people have the confidence to use your product and feel secure when doing it. I think that's spot on. And I would add that security doesn't really provide a competitive advantage, especially when it comes to cloud-based SaaS. The reason for that is relatively simple. If you're providing, let's say, a video conferencing service and you don't do security well, it's not just your company that suffers. It just undermines trust in the entire category. 
And so generally speaking, security is just one of those things that's table stakes. But would you agree, though, that things like audit logging, you know, archiving of recordings for compliance reasons and regulatory reasons, some of those things could be package differentiators. Those are sort of above the baseline of security. Yeah, but that's beyond sort of like we don't have SQL injection in our login page. It's almost a feature versus sort of a product. Well, that's a perfect segue to dig into the specific security aspects of the headlines. So now let's start with this topic of specifically end-to-end encryption. So first, for everyone who hasn't heard our past 16 Minutes episode on how to think about encryption in general, including the very hot topic of lawful intercepts and backdoors, definitely check out that episode separately. In this episode, I want to focus on Zoom's claims around the definition of encryption. They had to write a blog post, essentially mea culpa sort of, more precisely explaining where they do and don't end-to-end encrypt and that they were being a bit loose in the phrase. Can you help put that in context and define it and what are the broader implications? Yeah, and you know, it's funny. Security tends to be one of the areas where your product marketing tends to get you into more trouble than the product vulnerabilities themselves. When you start to make really strong claims about the security of your product, that tends to provoke an allergic response from the security industry because for many, many years, there have been a lot of people that are selling things that are technically untrue. A really good product marketing person with a security angle doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. That tends to be a skill set where if you're wading into security as an enterprise company, it needs to be one of your first hires. Zoom made the claim that their product used end-to-end encryption for their communications. And what that essentially means is that Alice and Bob are talking, Alice encrypts her message with a key that only Bob has, and it's encrypted until Bob gets it, and then Bob decrypts it and responds back with an encrypted message where Alice has the key to decrypt it. So essentially in that conversation, only those two participants can see the traffic. Well, it turns out that for most SaaS services, end-to-end encryption isn't something that can be very easily done, especially when you are having one-to-many discussions, right? So end-to-end encryption works great if it's just Alice and Bob, but if it's Alice talking to her company, it gets more challenging. And, And almost at some point, theoretically, it becomes close to impossible from a scalability perspective. And so Zoom made these claims and people kind of piled on and kind of lambasted them for it. The reality of the situation is that any SaaS-based service that's providing some layer of security is doing it pretty similarly to how Zoom is, where the SaaS provider sits in the middle of the relationship between Alice and Bob, and for some matter of time, the data that they're exchanging was likely unencrypted through the service provider's network. In their blog post, where they had to clarify, they do talk about how they have these connectors that operate in their cloud and connect between, for instance, conference rooms, so like Zoom conference rooms, Zoom telephonies, et cetera, and that content between those connectors is encrypted. So then what isn't encrypted, just to be very clear? I mean, honestly, I also have to ask, I know it sounds really bad, but how important is end-to-end encryption when people are working remotely and the risk of someone stealing your laptop on the end is probably much higher and riskier than the likelihood someone is going to read your messages while in transit. So I hate to ask, but is that a bit pointless in that scenario? Yeah, well, not necessarily because your laptop has a passphrase and your hard disk is encrypted and there are MDM, like remote wipe capabilities that can be used to help secure it. And so it's not, it goes back to kind of the thinking around defense in depth. I think 
end-to-end -end encryption is actually really, really important. And I mean, like, true validated end-to-end -end encryption is really important. So there were capabilities where some of the phone calls and some of the direct messages on the Zoom platform are end-to-end -end encrypted, but their video conferences aren't. It's just there's so much data and so much complexity. It's really difficult to provide end-to-end -end encryption for things like video services. I'd say 99% of the video conferences on Zoom, like eavesdropping is not particularly problematic. Like I don't necessarily want people listening to my kids' classroom, but at the same time, it's not like a national security issue. On the national security side, the recent headlines also talked about the concern that sometimes Zoom is using keys issued by servers in China, even when the meeting participants are all in North America. This is according to researchers at the University of Toronto, and as reported by The Intercept, they also pointed out that a number of employees are based in China, and we've talked about this briefly in, I think, the very first episode of 16 Minutes on TikTok, but I want to hear your thoughts on where that does and doesn't matter from a security perspective, and to put this news in context. I mean, so Zoom is like a lot of other successful companies that have strong ties to China, right? TikTok and others that are starting to get traction outside of China. And so they claimed in their S1 that they have significant development resources inside of mainland China because it's significantly less expensive than the Bay Area. And China has historically run a very aggressive intelligence collection apparatus they go after not just state secrets, so it's not just spies and such. They're also really interested in stealing intellectual property and historically have had a very large network for doing exactly that. And so companies who have had issues with China kind of had raised eyebrows when they read the S1. And there were some concerns that what is to stop a Zoom employee in China helping out their government because they come under some form of request or duress or whatever the case may be. Now, that is actually something that happens, you could say, in all countries, right? Like, this is what intelligence agencies do. And so I think that the China aspect, you know, the fact that they're doing this development, that they've got these ties to China, just adds another layer of complexity when you are evaluating this tool for the appropriateness of the communications that you're having on it. This actually goes back to the earlier point that not just the volume of users have changed and changed fast, but that the user base has shifted from enterprise to consumer use cases. And for me, the news that comes to mind here is the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Civic Rights, loosened up its enforcement of HIPAA regulations and related rules so that medical providers could serve patients wherever they are during this national public health emergency. And the example that comes to mind, given not just the security, but the sensitivity aspects, to your point, Joel, is that countless doctors, therapists, my therapists included, are now using business tools like Zoom and others for healthcare because those industries' tools weren't robust enough as the tech native ones. So does that change how you think about the security aspects of these tools then? I think it depends on who you are, right? We have seen nation states, you know, China included in there, go after health insurance companies, right? We saw them go after Anthem. They've been trying to get a lot of health data on people because ultimately they want to leverage that health data to try to coerce people to doing things for them. And so if you have a security clearance, if you've handled state secrets, if you work in any kind of intelligence community or government or state department, or you're a political figure, you probably don't want to share highly sensitive things over these platforms because they make you subject to blackmail, right? Those conversations need to have really strong cryptographic protections, which do ultimately destroy usability. So going back to kind of the earlier point, 
Like, is it okay for your kid's school to have their lessons over Zoom? Certainly. Are 90%, maybe 99% of your company's communications safe because you're not worried about Chinese espionage? Probably. If you are dealing with intellectual property that's highly sensitive, then you probably need to protect that with a more appropriate tool. And, and that's regardless of who the underlying operator of that tool is. Yeah, I think that I would break down the specific issues with Zoom into sort of two pieces. One was that this idea that some of the traffic, the non-Chinese traffic was routing through servers in China. And some security researchers found that I think the number was like five out of 73 of the key management servers that they found Zoom using were in China. Zoom said, hey, that was a mistake. We were just scaling so fast. You know, if they quickly correct it and we don't see that behavior anymore, I'm inclined to take them at their word. They have scaled dramatically. And then the second piece is the encryption that they're using. And to me, that's actually the most concerning part, is that the encryption they were using was sort of um, you know, laughably weak, that it could be broken by a sophisticated actor or potentially a nation state. And so I think that you, know, you really want to pay close attention to make sure those things are corrected in a way that is satisfactory to the security community. One observation that Joel and I have joked about is that, you know, you now are in a place where like every major security researcher on planet Earth is now using this tool Zoom for work and they have a lot more free time on their hands because they're not commuting, they're not traveling, they're not going to conferences. And so they're all like poking holes in Zoom. But in the long term, it will be very, very beneficial if they make the requisite changes, if they create the amount of transparency and openness that they need. So actually on that aspect, one quick question. What do you guys think of the role of open source here? That's one of the things Zoom talked about in their blog post is that they're considering open sourcing their code for others to try. I mean, to your point, it's kind of half a joke and funny because all these security researchers are sitting at home poking holes. But on the other hand, that's how things do advance in the security world. And honestly, how open source to some extent works with people everywhere contributing for better and for worse. From a security perspective, I'm a big believer in the adage that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so I think that when it comes to crypto and crypto schemes and a lot of those sorts of things like open source crypto, auditable crypto, you can see how things are implemented. And then some way to validate that in real time is just one of the most powerful ways to build trust. Now, it isn't always perfect and you do have issues where bugs can be inserted into code, et cetera, et cetera. But oftentimes, you know, those things are kind of found. Yeah, the more of a product that you open source, the more eyes that are on it, the more secure it has the potential to be as people can audit it more clearly and look for bugs more clearly. That said, it's generally very difficult for SaaS services to open source their entire stack because usually the backend services and some of the hosted services are the part of the proprietary secret sauce that does not get open source. So this isn't like a database system. It's really a complex part of infrastructure and servers and systems. And so I would guess that they're unlikely to open source those pieces. And even if they did, you're never really sure what they're actually running on their infrastructure. They already offer an on-prem version of Zoom, as far as I'm aware, as does WebEx and some of the other vendors out there. So, you know, I'm not sure that open sourcing here would answer or solve everyone's sort of concerns or issues, but it'll certainly be a step in the right direction. It just may not be satisfactory to the people that care the most. Okay, so bottom line it for me, you guys. How should we think about all these headlines, not just about Zoom, but also more broadly? I think my bottom line here is that Zoom has gone from enterprise mild obscurity to major, major center stage spotlight. And they're coping with that growth and they're coping with the new and changing demographic. I agree with everything Joel said about depending on what your threat surface is, you may not want to use Zoom in the short term. But I think long term, what ends up happening is they may become the most secure, the most transparent, the most verified video conferencing solution out there. 
Yeah, I mean, this is an experience similar to what we went through at Box. You know, as we IPO'd, we became popular, we started to have rapid growth, not the same level of growth that Zoom just saw. But, you know, as you start to get more and more noticed, you start to draw the attention of security researchers as well. But, you know, I think ultimately to the points that Davis made that this is something that makes their product stronger. And this is part of the life cycle of growing up as a SaaS application that gets insanely popular. The bottom line is that the future is cloud and this isn't the last time we're going to have this conversation. Great. Thank you both for joining this episode. Thank you. Thank you.